Good morning, everybody. This is Joe Moran with the Joe Moran Show. Excited to be here. Um, it's been a crazy, crazy couple weeks. I've had a lot of things going on um, with some other um, opportunities and interests that I'm pursuing. So the the podcast has taken a step back, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, but we're back, and it's going to be fairly political um, just because that's where we are. I mean, we were less than a month out from the election. Um, probably, I mean, it certainly is the most pivotal election of my lifetime um, in, the, in terms of the direction of where the, where the country is going. And the political arena is impacting the courts. It's impacting the economic environment. Um, it's, I mean, it's the center, it's the epicenter of where things are. So we got to talk about it. Um, it won't be, it's going to be fairly one-sided, you know, my views, you know, I try to bring an intellectual, um, kind of mindset to these discussions, but, and, 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 and it'll have that, believe me, today's going to have that, but you know, we're not going to both sides Trump. I'm just telling you that right now. We're not going to, you know, participate in the whataboutism um, uh, that that often happens uh, when you when you talk to you talk about Trump or you talk about Republicans in general, um, or at least the modern I'll call it the modern day Republican Party. Um, so we're going to talk about Trump, the polls, the campaign event at the White House over the weekend. Uh, Pelosi did bring up the 25th Amendment last week, so we need to talk about it. Uh, court packing, <laughs> it just boggles my mind where we are in this court packing discussion, so I really want to dive into that. ECB came out, um, and Lagarde came out with a statement really trying to explain further the monetary policy how inflation um, has actually uh, slowed down in the last decade. And it seems like, <laughs> well, I've got some thoughts on it, but uh, we're gonna talk about that, Justice Department, FBI, what they're doing in the crypto space. And then a discussion that I had with my former boss who um, is a CFO of the largest you know, Kenworth trucking company in the world. And I want to kind of talk about that conversation that I had with him and why it makes me so bullish on crypto and most notably Bitcoin. Um, and, and why I'm bullish and why there's still a long ways to go in terms of corporate adoption and holding Bitcoin on corporate balance sheets for companies that probably aren't on the coasts, most notably the West Coast. Um, but that's today's show. We got a lot to talk about, so let's get started. So first of all, Trump and the polling it's not getting better, um, but I think I think it's not getting worse either, right, for him. So, you know, Biden's still tracking, let's call it plus 8 to plus 12, you know, somewhere in that ballpark. Give a point or two. Um, the debates didn't, you know, the, we've, we've, we've seen kind of the impact of the debate. We've seen the impact of COVID-19 on Trump. Um, I mean, we are where we are, right? There's only... I don't know, 20 to 25 days left until the election, 21 days until the election on November 3rd. There aren't a lot of opportunities, right, to, to change the race. Um, there was going to be a debate this week, but Trump wouldn't accept a virtual debate since he has COVID. And because of that, <laughs> the debate's off and and now we're going to have town hall discussions uh one with biden and one with trump at the same time uh but really it's a 
it's a lost opportunity for Trump. And, you know, I'm trying to think about why wouldn't he do the virtual debate? So he wouldn't do the virtual debate because it reinforces that COVID's a problem. It reinforces that Trump is contagious or potentially contagious. He still hasn't even stated when the last negative test was. Hasn't stated it. Right? And is that because he was positive in the last debate? Likely, right? Two weeks ago. Um, so he hasn't he hasn't stated it. He refuses to do a virtual debate. Look, we're in a virtual world. I don't care what anybody says. We're in a virtual world. And if you're in a virtual debate over Zoom, you can cut microphones. Now, I'm not saying that's what the moderator would do, given how moderators have handled the past two debates, the presidential and the vice presidential debate. But it makes it more difficult, right, if you're on a virtual debate and and, and in regards to talking over people um, because they can just cut the mic. It's really easy. Um, But he won't do it. Um, and so what happened was, you know, Biden's like, fine, you know, I'm going to move forward. I'm going to have a town hall. I'm going to answer people's questions. I'm going to act presidential, you know, all the things like, again, Biden doesn't need to be a superstar. He doesn't. He just needs to act presidential. That's it. That's it. He needs to somewhat say I'm a centrist, which he's done. I'm not going to cater to the to the extremes of my party which he's done and he needs to act presidential and he'll likely win right um he'll likely win so so biden's going to answer people's questions going to give him time he's going to be able to display the empathy that trump lacks and I think there's real risk for Trump in having a counter town hall at the same time. The reason Trump's doing it is because he can't, <laughs> he probably can't stand, right, that Biden is moving forward without him and that they're moving forward without him, without Trump. So that's the first thing. The second thing is he probably is wanting to get better ratings. So he can say, look, you know, I'm leading the polls. I get better ratings. I don't care what I don't care what the pollsters are saying. People want to see me, etc. Right. I can just you can you can almost hear him saying that right to. Um, to his, the people in his administration. Right. I mean, he would say something like that. He would. Now, the challenge is what happens if Biden actually gets better ratings? It's going to reinforce. It will absolutely reinforce that he's losing in the polls. And you fear kind of a real meltdown in that scenario. Um, You know, I don't think you're going to have a third debate. Um, And you're running out of chances to impact this election. You're running out of chances. Uh, I mean, let's look at these polls. Biden, plus 10 in a generic, plus 12, plus 13, plus 12. Montana, Trump's winning by six. Okay. Pennsylvania, Biden's up five. Not bad. Let's go to yesterday's polling. Nevada, Biden up six. Michigan, up six. He's even in Iowa. Wisconsin, Biden's up seven. Pennsylvania, up five. Michigan, plus seven. Trump and the Baldwin-Wallace University, so it's a Great Lakes poll. Trump's up two in Ohio. I mean, you kind of go through it, and Biden's leading in all of these tipping states, where last time... I mean, the margins, they were even. Now, Hillary was crushing kind of on the overall, but on a state level, uh, it was was tighter. It was tighter. On the Senate perspective, Greenfield, 
in Iowa is up four over Ernst, right? So the Republicans are at risk of losing Iowa. Um, they're likely going to lose Arizona. Uh, it, it, it just gets really difficult. It gets really difficult. And it tells the story of why the Republicans are acting the way they are relative to the Supreme Court and trying to push it through last second. But they know that it's getting out of reach, right? They know that time is not on their side. You've had 9 million people that have already voted in 2020. Nine million people. That's an amazing, that is an amazing number. It's an amazing number. You know, when I was looking at this a couple weeks ago, there wasn't even 100,000 people that voted at this point in time in, in 2016. So you're gonna have huge turnout. We know that. You know, Trump, <laughs> while he's saying that mail-in voting is a conduit for fraud, he's pushing mail-in voting for his constituents. Republicans have been challenging mail-in voting in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, other states, Montana, and their challenges are getting struck down because there's not voter fraud with mail-in voting. There's not. It is not a problem. And so... It, it gets... It just gets very difficult. It gets very difficult for Trump and the Republicans. And so... I'm still waiting on, you know, some sort of October surprise, but I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. You know, Trump has a campaign at the White House, campaign event at the White House on Saturday because he can't go anywhere. The guy has COVID. He's contagious. He's on an experimental treatment. So he has a campaign event the White House on Saturday and the attendees received payments to go. Candace Owens paid for travel and lodging for these people to go to the event. They had to be coerced into going. You didn't have to wear a mask at the event, even though the White House <laughs> is uh, is apparently um, has the virus just lingering throughout it. It's 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 unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And so they're having a campaign event. You know, it's disgusting the fact that there's never been a politicization of the White House. The actual kind of facility, doing campaign events, having your, um, accepting um, your nomination, all of those things that Trump has done. I mean, it's disgusting. Trump thinks that... Um, that we, the people, are his property. That's what he thinks. Right? He really views himself as a king. He doesn't understand that he works for us. He doesn't understand that. Right? And that's one of the main challenges and one of the main reasons why his, um, his presidency hasn't been super successful it's because he thinks he thinks that we work for him and we're his property when in fact it's the other way around 
And so he's trailing in the polls. He's holding campaign events at the White House because he can't travel. I mean, it just isn't going well, right? Republicans, strategists know that it's likely they lose the Senate. They lose the White House. They're not going to have, they're not going to win the House in that scenario. And at that point, at that point, they're just kind of along for the ride, right? And I think they're trying to make this court packing issue a central theme for the next two years as the minority, okay? That's what I think they're doing. So what's interesting and what Trump has done really since day one and the Republicans are now you know, kind of taking or following the lead is Trump has been excellent at projection. It's his bread and butter, right? He'll say, oh, you're doing this or you're doing X. You know, Joe Biden's cheating, Hunter Biden's taking bribes, whatever. When the reality is that Trump's cheating or Trump's kids are taking bribes or, you know, whatever uh, an opponent of Trump's is doing, or Trump says is doing, the reality is Trump's been doing it, right? So he projects whatever he's doing onto somebody else and says it as a negative. Well, the Republicans have been packing the court since Obama was in office, okay? Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell wouldn't let any judges, he was blocking the confirmation of federal judges in the last two to three years of Obama's presidency, okay? He wouldn't let them go through. Blocked them. It wasn't because Obama wasn't trying to push through judges. It's his right as the president. I mean, let's, let's, let's I'm going to give you a blurb here. It says, okay. Fox host Sean Hannity told the Kentucky senator that he was shocked that the Obama administration left so many vacancies and didn't try to fill these positions. So this is a conservative talk show host talking to the um, Senate majority leader out of Kentucky about why there were so many vacancies in, uh, for federal judges when Obama left. Okay, so he's like, I can't. So the, the talk show host is saying, I can't believe he left these many vacancies. What is he crazy? Okay, and then here's McConnell. He says, I'll tell you why. I was in charge of what we did the last two years of the Obama administration. And then the talk show host says, I will give you full credit for that. And by the way, take a bow. So when Trump took office, he had more than 100 vacancies of lifetime appointments. 100 vacancies that were blocked. And so when Trump came in, they started pushing all and putting all these conservative judges in the court system, people without experience, people that don't understand the law, some of them, not all of them, but some of them. And they packed the court. That's that these that's not a disputable fact. It's not a disputable fact. And now the Republicans are rushing in an unprecedented manner to push through another Supreme Court justice, even though they're not sticking to the same set of rules that they um, implemented and, uh, and put into effect in Obama's last year. They're trying to pack the Supreme Court. And so they flip the script, right? They flip the script and they say, oh, no, what's going to happen after the Democrats take powers? They're going to pack the court. And it forces the Democrats to go on defense. It boggles my mind. Media, you know what's happening. Why are you letting the Republicans frame the discussion? Why are you letting them frame the talking points? This is how Trump got elected. Because again, 
the media treated Jake Tapper, treated Hillary's emails in an unsecured server as the same as Trump's meanderings with the Russians, the Saudi Arabians, numerous bankruptcies, paying off porn stars with campaign money. They tried to create equivalences when they weren't equal. They tried to say, what about this? What about this? What about this? And the media fucking takes it because the media feels like they're compelled even if there's an order of magnitude difference, we talked about this. There is a power law difference. It is real. Order of magnitude matters. Okay? The media, the Jake Tappers of the world, feel compelled. Oh, well, if there's all this dirt, if there's a hundred things about Trump, right? We got a hundred things that we could talk about. Well, if there's one or five on the Democrat side, maybe there's ten. We have to treat the 10 the same as the 100 because we need to show that we're not biased, right? And we got to cater to the viewers. Again, they're worried about clicks. Instead of being right, instead of being right and performing due diligence, and asking real legitimate questions and being free thinkers, the media lets the fucking Republican Party lead them through this dog and pony show because they're afraid. And it's embarrassing. Like, I can't believe we're talking about court packing and it's all of a sudden become a Democrat policy. It's not a policy. It's not an issue. It's not a campaign issue. Biden isn't running on the Supreme Court. He's not running on judges. And somehow, he has to defend his record When you got Lindsey Graham, who refuses to take a COVID test because if he is actually positive, then they can't go through with the Senate Judiciary Committee's recommendation to push through ACB. And let's talk about ACB. Is this really the type of person that we want on the Supreme Court that's willing to go along with us? That this is the only way that she can get in? Is being rushed through? When she's failing to disclose certain rulings on abortion or gun rights, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. The Democrats need to absolutely pound the table over the next three weeks. Over the next three weeks. And get a consistent message, which I feel like they're starting to get, finally. Biden over the weekend said, "Look, this isn't. We're gonna uh, uh, we're gonna see what happens, right? I'm not gonna give an answer until after the election because I'm not court packing. The Republicans are. Finally, Senator Durbin from Illinois." The American people have watched the Republicans packing the court for the last three and a half years, and they bragged about it. 
we were dealing with people in the court packing into the court with little or no qualifications for a long time. Why are there two standards? Is it because one party, and this is when it gets back to game theory. Look, if you're a bad actor, right? So you've got rational actors and irrational actors. If you're a bad actor, you're incentivized because you'll get away with it. Right? Especially if the other people in the game don't call you out and don't hold you accountable. When is the media going to hold the Republicans accountable? And then when the Democrats even think about doing something similar, the Republicans call them out and the media is just hammering them, the Democrats. It is mind-boggling. I don't understand it. Where is the integrity? I mean, the democracy of the country is the only thing riding on this election. Are people actually aware of that? Is the media aware of that? You know, it would be interesting is if Biden said, well, these are what my policies are going to be. I'm going to lock up children. I'm going to take away your health care. I'm going to give a massive tax break to the top 1% of the country. And he starts going through and he lists all of the things that Trump's done over the last four years. I'm going to put our national security up for the highest bidder. Everything is going to be purely transactional. If he starts listing every little thing, right, and says, I'm going to run on all these things, what would happen? He'd come under assault from the media. He would. Republicans would crush him. The people of this country would say, whoa, 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 we can't have that. We can't have that. Right? But that's what the Republicans have done over the last four years. That's what they've done. And so court packing, I'm just telling you right now, court packing is going to be a central theme over the next two years. Because the Republicans can't talk about the economy can't talk about health care. What can they run on? They can't run on anything. So they're setting the stage right now, right now, for what the main point of topic is going to be over the next two years from their perspective in hopes that they can then turn the election for the Senate and the House back to them in 2022. That's what's happening right now. So it's happening right now. But again, people are already voting. There's probably going to be something that drops over the next 21 days, right? To try to tighten the race. I think it I th I think it's unlikely that it does tighten. The Republicans are going to continue to push through this Supreme Court nomination. If they were so confident 
that what they were doing was on the up and up and that AB, ACB, whatever the fucker name is, was such a high quality candidate, then why does it have to be rushed through? Why does it have to be rushed through? If the Republicans cared about people's safety and health and COVID, then why won't Lindsey Graham take the, take the COVID test? Why does Trump hold campaign rallies at a super spreader location? Because they don't care. It's about power. It's always been about power. And I think the people are starting to realize it. And again, both parties want power. Both parties want to stay elected. They're incentivized to do so. Right? They're more incentivized to stay in power and to keep their power than actually put the country on the right path in an ever-changing world. But one party couldn't give a shit and the other one does. And what's happening is you got a fracturing of trust between the citizens of this country and the government and centralized institutions. And with information as abundant as it is, now you got to sift through all the misinformation, right? and all the bullshit but if you can wade yourself through that then you can get the facts you can get the truth and you can make your own decisions so I'm incredibly optimistic about the world and the future now there's going to be a lot of pain and I think it's going to be crazy over the next few years but I'm incredibly optimistic because I think people are starting to tap into their potential and they're realizing that they don't need centralized institutions to be successful. Should we have cheap healthcare? Fuck yeah, absolutely. I pay a shitload in taxes, right? But it's up to me to be healthy to not need the healthcare, right? There's a difference. There's a difference. Now, Pelosi, she's starting to push the 25th Amendment because Trump's on the steroid and he can't think clearly. I think it's fair to bring it up. Absolutely. Does he have the cognitive ability right now to display sound judgment in time of a crisis? It's fair to ask that question. It's fair to ask that question. I hope we hear more about it. And you know what? Even if we don't hear about it from the Republicans, and they're going to say that that's crazy, I hope quietly as they're planning as they're strategizing over the next couple months what's going to happen that they're at least thinking about it what do we do if this goes off the rails i mean we already know that they're afraid of a transfer of power but what happens if the power needs to be transferred from trump to pence are they willing to do it Probably not because Trump's got Kushner and Ivanka around him and they're all afraid of him. But we need to have a conversation. Because if he's on medication that doesn't allow him to think clearly, then he puts everybody at risk. Everybody at risk. So I'm hopeful that this conversation continues that it continues i'm hopeful i'm hopeful the ecb 
is trying to clarify some of its points on their monetary policy and the overall monetary policy strategy. The last time that they had a review um, was, I believe, in the early 2000s. And I'm not going to bore you uh, by reading this article. Um, I would just look up monetary policy strategy review, some preliminary considerations. It was a speech by Lagarde, president of the ECB. And I mean, honestly, the whole article or the whole speech is largely about inflation, why they haven't been able to heat or hit their inflation objectives, some of the challenges that the ECB has faced compared to, to its counterpart, the Fed, um, and the United States economy. And the only real takeaway, you know, for me, as Lagarde has a speech to try to clarify their position and explain it, right? I mean, Lagarde is asking for feedback from stakeholders of the system. Okay, well, that's a start, right? What you do with that information, um, they probably won't do anything, right? But it's at least a start. But if she's talking to some farmer or a blue collar worker, even white collar workers, they don't understand what inflation is, most of them, right? So I'm gonna read just one kind of one section here and then we'll talk about it. It says, the arguments in favor of central banks aiming for positive inflation rates with a sufficient buffer away from zero were articulated during our strategy review in 2003. It compensates for the possible measurement bias, helps countries rebalance their economies within a monetary union, and creates a buffer against deflation, as well as leading to higher nominal interest rates over the medium term. That helps ensure that monetary policy is not forced too often towards the effective lower bound that the level of interest rates at which further cuts do not have the desired positive impact when faced with shocks that push inflation too low. So what does that mean? It's basically saying we need to have inflation because it gives us the ability and the latitude to change interest rates and to help stimulate the economy if there's um if deflation is approaching that's basically what it says but they don't explain what inflation is actually doing so they said it creates price stability how does it create price stability well it's artificially propping up prices and making things more expensive over time which is an erosion of your purchasing power as an individual. The central banks need growth because it says, and it says, well, we're doing a great job because we've had some growth, right? But it's taking more and more debt to generate that growth. Now, if Lagarde said, well, we need inflation and inflation actually strips away 2% of your purchasing power on an annual basis, that would be a real conversation, right? That would be helpful because I don't think people understand it that way. You know, this is one of those things where, you know, somebody asks you a question and you give them half, a half truth. Be honest. Give them the full truth. And we're starting to see these things that are coming out, right? So we got this, a clarification of our monetary policy. There's some current concerns from the ECB and the Fed about digital currencies. 
and the impact of people using alternative currencies and opting out of the system and the impact that that could actually have on the monetary policies of the central banks. So the central banks, they're paying attention to what's happening in the crypto space, right? In the past couple weeks, we've seen the Department of Justice come out with a framework on cryptocurrencies. Now, 99% of it was um, to describe how people use cryptocurrencies um, to conduct criminal activity, which is patently false. Now, maybe 1% of crypto is used for criminal activities, but that's no different than fiat currency, right? It's no different than hard cash and conducting transactions via $100 bills and a briefcase. It's no different. You know, the FBI going after BitMEX and McAfee. Department of Justice came out. Department of Justice, excuse me, came out again with a article talking about end-to-end -end encryption and why it's an important technology. It's actually bad because it could be used for criminal behavior. And. It's just a lot of scare tactics. They're trying to create fear and scare people out of using these technologies and these tools to live their daily lives without government interference. Why should somebody have to tell a bank what they're using their money for? That doesn't make any sense. Why does the United States get to use monetary policy and the dollar to harm other countries through sanctions? Doesn't make any sense. And so you're seeing all of these things because in my opinion, there's real concern that the central bankers know that there's a lack of trust between what they're doing and the people that reside in the countries that are impacted by their central bank policies. There's real concern. They know that there's a narrative out there from macroeconomists that aren't on CNBC or Bloomberg, but there's a narrative amongst portion of the population and macroeconomists that the central bankers are slowly killing the system. And they are. And so you're starting to see these things pop up because they know that crypto and Bitcoin is going to become a more uh, attractive space for people while the central banks print trillions of dollars and artificially keep the economies propped up because they haven't let they haven't let them reach their natural resting place without intervention. So I think we're gonna see more of it. I expect more of it. I expect more articles. I expect more speeches. I expect the Department of Justice to arrest somebody else and the FBI to go get take down some other crypto exchange, right? Because they're trying to get their arms wrapped around this thing before they can't you know control it at all i think it's already beyond their ability to control and there was always going to be regulation but we're past the point of no return we're past the point of no return but that doesn't mean they're not going to try right 
that they're not going to use words, they're not going to use speeches, they're not going to do articles and scare tactics. You know, if Biden gets in and Kamala Harris gets in, she's familiar with the tech scene. She's familiar with Silicon Valley. She's probably more familiar with Bitcoin and crypto than most other politicians. And so if Biden wins, this rhetoric that's coming from the Department of Justice and Bill Bill Barr, you know, that's largely going to go away, uh, I think, I think. Um, but we'll see. You know, the, the, the last thing, and it all kind of goes together, is I had a meeting or I had a conversation with my former boss who was a, uh, a prominent CFO in the uh, Kansas City area. And I really wanted to pick his mind on and try to gauge his understanding of the macroeconomic environment, how it impacts his business and the business that he helps kind of operate, um, as well as his understanding of Bitcoin and currencies. And it really proved what I thought um, and, you know, we're going through this phase where uh, Square purchased $50 million of Bitcoin and it's on their balance sheet. MicroStrategies purchased $425 million, put it on their balance sheet. And I wanted to get his thoughts on it. Um, you know, thought number one, doesn't understand Bitcoin at all. Doesn't understand it. Doesn't think that a currency can be valued without a government saying that it's valued. Um, doesn't understand it. He thinks that the central bankers are doing a phenomenal job, that they injected liquidity into the market. Um, you know, there was acknowledgement that they're probably propping up the market, but honestly, th there was just a lack of understanding about what moves... Um, what what moves macroeconomic activity and how it impacts potentially impacts his business um, via the global financial system and so you know i'm not going to bore you with the entire conversation but it it striked me as an important nugget because here's a prominent cfo who doesn't have a pulse on the macroeconomic activity that's happening, the destruction that's taking place, the currency destruction that's happening all over the world, its impact on currencies here, and isn't interested and doesn't understand how technology is impacting prices in a deflationary way and how fintech and technology could be the future of our currencies going forward. And so if I think about it in terms of Bitcoin adoption, I think you have to be extremely bullish because we're this far and there is that big of a gap in terms of understanding. And once people like my former boss start to understand it as a math person, as an accounting person, as a finance person, it all starts to click because you can't manipulate it because it's airtight. Because it's all driven by mathematical computation and how anybody can validate it, anybody can verify it. And so I left, I left the meeting originally discouraged because, you know, for, for reasons that aren't really that interesting here, but it gave me unbelievable optimism because there's just such a lack of knowledge. And once these people get it, he has a fiduciary responsibility to his shareholders 
to that balance sheet and protecting the purchasing power. So as the dollar gets wrecked, he's going to have a fiduciary fiduciary responsibility to protect that balance sheet. And that means hard assets. It means gold. It means real estate. Even though it's too hard, the execution of those transactions is a lot slower. It means Bitcoin. The crypto space is so early. It's still so early. And people live their daily lives. They don't think about the future. They don't think about how the world is changing and how it impacts them. I think that actually started to change given COVID and you know, kind of the, the uh, geopolitical response and the international response. But largely, people just live their lives and they don't understand how it's all connected. And that meeting, albeit frustrating, because for one, you know, on one level, he doesn't understand it, doesn't understand why it's important, doesn't understand how it's going to impact his business. That just means there's tremendous opportunity when he and his peers and their counterparts all around the world, when they do get it, when they do get it. There's a lot going on right now. There's a lot going on. And we're not going to be able to avoid these topics over the next probably couple months. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts. So leave a message, leave a rating, send me an email. Send me an email. Hit my Twitter, Joseph underscore P underscore Moran. And let's talk about these things because it's too critical. It's too critical. We do not need low information voters. We don't need them. So get informed. And until tomorrow, let's keep our ears to the grindstone.